podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. We really do appreciate it. On today's episode, we'll do a short news segment on La Liga and on Napoli. In part 2, we'll recap round 33 of Serie A, round 35 of Serie B, and the semi-finals of the Serie C promotion playoff. In part 3, we'll review Napoli's draw to Bologna on Wednesday. And in part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Udinese on Sunday. So let's start with a quick update from Spain. On Thursday, Real Madrid clinched their 34th La Liga title by defeating Villarreal 2-1. Meanwhile, Barcelona lost to Osasuna. After the match, Leo Messi was brutally honest about this La Liga campaign and the club's struggles. He added that if they want to win, they need to change a lot, and if they continue like this, they will lose to Napoli. With one match remaining, the Champions League positions are all set, with Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, and Sevilla finishing in the top four. The Europa League positions are still on the line. As it stands, Villarreal and Real Sociedad are in their Europa League positions, but Getafe, Valencia, and Granada are all still alive. At the bottom of the table, Espanyol and Mallorca will both be relegated, while Leganes and Celta Vigo will battle to avoid the third relegation spot. Leganes play first place Real Madrid, while Celta Vigo play last place Espanyol. Moving on to Napoli, I'll provide a quick update on Victor Osimhen. This deal seems to have veered in the wrong direction. We mentioned last episode that Osimhen fired his agent who was trying to negotiate a higher bonus for himself. That agent worked for a firm called Star Factory. His new agent is William Davila. The Star Factory may actually sue Osimhen for breaking their contract. The change in agent initially slowed the negotiation because essentially Juntili had to start from scratch. Then reports surfaced that Davila had begun calling around, particularly to clubs in the Premier League. According to Corriere dello Sport, Davila had proposed Osman to Liverpool, Manchester United, and Tottenham, and a number of Italian media outlets started reporting that Liverpool were eager to sign Osman. Rai Sport reported that Liverpool were willing to match Napoli's five-year term, but pay Osman nearly double the salary at around €7 million Euros plus bonuses. It appears that was probably media speculation or at best Davila was using Liverpool to try to drive the price up. According to Gianluca Di Marzio, Napoli are still the front runners to sign Osimhen. While he's linked to other clubs, those clubs have only asked for information. And his current club, Lille, are pushing him to move quickly because of the club's financial situation. In other news, there has been a surge in the number of new coronavirus cases in Catalonia, including Barcelona. Based on these numbers, we could see UEFA move the second leg of the Napoli-Barcelona Champions League tie to Lisbon. So that's it for the news. In part two, we'll recap the latest action in Italian football. (laughs) 
guarda, guarda, che su giardina siente si si giurarà. Okay, so next we'll cover the latest action in Italian football, starting with Serie A. We'll start with Juventus against Sassuolo, which was a really exciting match between the champions who have not been at their best and a Sassuolo club that's been second only to Atalanta since Serie A resumed. Juventus made a few changes to their back line. Chiellini made his return in place of Bonucci. Sari gave Quadrado a rest and he moved Danilo to right back and started Alexandro at left back. Early in the match, it looked like Juventus was going to win this match comfortably. Danilo scored in the fifth minute on his birthday, no less. The goal came on a set piece off a corner kick. He was left completely unmarked at the top of the box. He hit the ball first time with pace and bend to beat Andrea Consigli. Gonzalo Higuain made the most of his first start in a while, which is because Dybala has been playing so well. Higuain doubled Juve's lead in the 12th minute on a gorgeous long ball from Miralem Pjanic. Sassuolo were quick to respond, though they nearly pulled one back in the 23rd minute, but Wojtek Szczesny made a world-class save on Mert Muldur that took a deflection off Blaise Matuidi. Szczesny was actually moving in the opposite direction and had to dive against his momentum to make this save. Muldur, by the way, is looking like a really promising young talent. Then in the 27th minute, Szczesny made another big save, this time on Domenico Berardi, after a quick 1-2 with Chicho Caputo. But in the 29th minute, Filip Juricic scored a well-deserved goal after Sassuolo did really, really well to build out from the back. They made about nine quick passes before breaking out. The changes to Juve's back line didn't go so well. Chiellini looked a step too slow and Alexandro really struggled with Berardi. It was Berardi who equalized in the 51st minute with a perfectly executed free kick. Bentancur and Ronaldo didn't do a great job in the wall and Chesney didn't move. He knew that he had no chance of stopping that shot. Only three minutes later, Sassuolo took the lead. Caputo picked out Berardi on the right side of the box. Berardi cut to his weaker right foot and shot across the goal. Caputo had continued his run to the far post where Berardi's shot found him. So like they did against Milan, Juventus squandered another 2-0 lead. Sari brought in Dybala and Rabiot to help bolster the attack and they made an immediate impact. In the 60th minute, they linked up before Dybala picked up Ronaldo's run to the far post where he should have scored but he scuffed his shot. In the 64th minute, Alexandro equalized off a corner kick with a header at the near post. Juventus had a strong final half hour of the match but were unable to score again. Sassuolo nearly scored in the 84th minute but Shesesny made another excellent save on Traore and then Boga's shot on the rebound was cleared off the line by Alexandro. So this one ended 3-3. With the draw, Juventus haven't won in three matches now. They lost to Milan, drew Atalanta, and now they've drawn Sassuolo. And Cristiano Ronaldo's goal-scoring streak ended at six consecutive matches. Inter played Spal on Monday. 
Inter dominated this match as you would expect, but didn't actually score until late in the first half. In the 5th minute, Marcelo Brozovic hit the post. Going the other way in the 23rd minute, Andrea Pitania showed his size and strength to hold up, turn and fire, but his shot came off the crossbar. In the 27th minute, Alexis Sanchez nearly opened the scoring after Lautaro pressured spellkeeper Letizia into turning the ball over, but Sanchez's shot just missed the empty target. Inter finally broke through in the 37th minute, Antonio Candreva was left completely unmarked on the right wing and Alexis Sanchez found him. He would have been offside, but Jacopo Sala played him on, which shows the difference between a top-of-the-table club, even a mid-table club, and a bottom-of-the-table club. If Sala just stopped running, Candreva would have been offside and the goal wouldn't have counted. Cristiano Biraghi made it 2-0 in the 55th minute. Again, another mistake from Spal. This time it was Francesco Vicari who failed to clear Lautaro's pass for Sanchez, which landed for Biraghi, and Biraghi did well to pick the corner. Sanchez made a 3-0 in the 60th minute, which was certainly well-deserved for how well he's been playing lately. All of a sudden, renewing Sanchez has become a top priority for Inter and for Pepe Marotta. In the 73rd minute, Roberto Gagliardini made it 4-0, tapping into an empty goal from only a few feet away, which we know from the Sassuolo match that that is not a gimme for him. So Inter won 4-0, and with the win, they're back in second place, only 6 points back of Juve, that's given some Interisti the false hope that they could actually have a shot of winning the Scudetto. I know Juventus hasn't been great since the restart, but I'd honestly be surprised if they dropped a single point in their next five matches with how easy their schedule is. I hope I'm wrong, but we'll see what happens. Juventus have Lazio next, which was supposed to be a huge match, but Lazio have completely imploded, and now this is expected to be an easy win for the Bianconeri. Speaking of Lazio, they drew Udinese 0-0, but we'll cover that in more detail in part 4. Atalanta took on Brescia in a lopsided affair. Before the match started, these clubs were 46 points apart in the table. Brescia rested Tonali, which actually makes sense. If you know you're going to lose this match, you might as well rest your stars for the next one. Atalanta punished Bologna 6-1. It didn't take long for Atalanta to score the first goal of the match, which came in under 90 seconds. Like against Juventus, Atalanta worked the ball around the pitch beautifully, stringing together 16 passes before Mario Pasalic finished off. Brescia nearly equalized 90 seconds later after the last man back, Mattia Caldara stumbled on the ball, allowing Torregrossa to break free, but Sportiello was quick off his line to close the angle and make the save. In the 8th minute, Caldara would make yet another mistake that again allowed Torregrossa a clear path to the goal and this time he tucked his shot inside the far post. Even against Brescia, Atalanta's backline looked a little shaky. In the 25th minute, Atalanta went ahead again. Once again, the buildup was beautiful. Atalanta completed 14 passes, forward, backward, side to side, and the Darun finish was something else. He hit the volley first time with the outside of his boot to the far post from a pass coming from the near side, which is incredibly difficult to do, but Darun made it look easy. Only a few minutes later, Ruslan Malinovsky put Atalanta up 3-1. We've seen what Malinovsky can do with both feet, but especially with his preferred left foot. Malinovsky was given acres of space to get onto his left foot, poor defending from Mattia Viviani, he needed to close him down sooner, and the switch from Darun to pick out Castagna's run on the right wing was remarkable as well. Duvan Zapata made it 4-1 in the 30th minute, Pasalic added a second in the 55th minute, the run was perfectly timed, the through ball from Malinowski was perfectly weighted, and the finish was well placed. 
Only a few minutes later, Pazilic completed his tripleta. At this point, it really did feel like they were playing on the training ground. I'm not sure why Brescia were trying to play their way out from the back. Brescia did pull one back in the 83rd minute, but by that point, it really didn't matter. With the win, Atalanta were in second place for two days, but dropped to third after Inter beat Spal on Thursday. Atalanta now have 93 goals in Serie A and have scored five or more goals in six matches this season. Roma took on Verona at the Olimpico in Rome. In the 7th minute, Verona made claims for a penalty. Davide Faraoni played a ball over the top to Andrea Zaccagni. Paul Lopez was slow off his line but got to the ball just before Zaccagni went down so no penalty was given. Only moments later, Roma were awarded a penalty for a tackle by Alan Emperor on Lorenzo Pellegrini in the box. This play was really close. I thought Emperor got the ball and Pellegrini threw himself to the ground. But it's hard to see on the replay if Emperor got a piece of Pellegrini as well. And since the penalty was called on the field, the VAR upheld the decision. Even Urich lost his mind after this sequence of events and was shown a red card after he had a few choice words for match official Fabio Maresca. Jordan Vertu stepped up and converted the penalty to put Roma up 1-0. Henrik Mkhitaryan nearly doubled Roma's lead in the 28th minute, but his shot from the left side hit the upright and stayed out. Roma did get their second just before the break after a rare giveaway by Sofian Amrabat in his own end. Spianazzola picked out Edin Dzeko around the penalty spot. Dzeko did well first to win the header over Matias Zaccagni, who never stood a chance in that duel, and then to place his header in the bottom corner past Marco Silvestri. Verona looked much better at the start of the second half. Matteo Pessina pulled one back for the Giallo Blue. Veloso picked out Zaccagni's run on the wing. Zaccagni did well to win possession and cut the ball back for Pessina who finished beautifully with a little backheel flick. After that, it was all Roma. They had numerous opportunities to score a third. Dzeko nearly scored his second in the 58th minute. Pellegrini sent Bruno Perez down the wing. Perez did well to spot Dzeko near the penalty spot, but his shot was just barely over the bar. Mkhitaryan nearly got the third in the 64th minute. This time, Pellegrini broke free down the right wing after Alan Emperor tripped over his own feet. Silvestri challenged, but the ball still fell for Pellegrini. He cut it back, but the pass was behind Mkhitaryan, who as a result wasn't able to make solid contact, which allowed Lazovic to get back to clear the ball off the line. Dzeko had another chance in the 73rd minute from point-blank range that he blasted over the bar. Mkhitaryan missed another opportunity in the 81st minute, and in the 84th minute, Zaniolo's shot was stopped by Silvestri. Though Roma did not convert any of these chances, they held on to win 2-1. That's Roma's third consecutive win after they dropped three straight. They're looking better of late, and they have Zaniolo back, so the play should only improve. Their next match is against Inter, so that will be an interesting test for the Giallorossi. Meanwhile, Verona have had a rough go of it since the restart, and they are now 9 points back of Milan in 7th spot, so their chances of qualifying for Europa League are all but gone. Next, we had Milan play against Parma. Andres Cornelius left this match early after falling awkwardly. Milan nearly opened the scoring in the 20th minute from a corner kick, but Romagnoli's header hit the upright and stayed out. Moments later, Bonaventura thought he scored, but he was just offside, so the score remained nil-nil. Though Milan had the lion's share of possession in the first half, Gervinho nearly opened the scoring on the counterattack. Parma are one of the best in the league on the counterattack with 8 goals. Only a few minutes after that, Parma did open the scoring with Yasmin Kurtic picking the bottom corner. One thing we've seen from Milan since the restart, though, is this club does not give up, and they showed that in the second half. 
In the 55th minute, Frank Kessia scored an absolute screamer from 30 yards out, which has led some to compare him to Clarence Seedorf. That's Kessia's third goal in his last three matches. Then only a few minutes later, Milan captain Alessio Romagnoli put Milan ahead with his first goal of the season. Like against Juventus, Milan scored these two goals in rapid succession. Parma came very close to equalizing in the 74th minute. Simon Kier slid to block Kulusevsky's shot, which deflected off the post and stayed out. A few minutes later, Donnarumma made an excellent save on Roberto Inglese from point-blank range, which proved to be a really important save. Only moments after that save, Hakan Chalanoglu blasted a powerful low shot past an outstretched Luigi Seppe. Giacomo Bonaventura made a great run on this goal. He started from his own half, dribbled around Hernani, then played the square ball for Chalanoglu. Milan went on to win this match 3-1, so they remain one of the hottest clubs in Serie A, and they remain only 4 points back of Roma for 5th spot. At the bottom of the table, Lecce took on Fiorentina. This was a really entertaining match, especially in the first half. In the 6th minute, Federico Chiesa put Fiorentina ahead with his first goal since February. Only a few minutes later, Lecce keeper Gabriel fouled Getzal in the box of Fiorentina were awarded a penalty. Gabriel made up for the foul, though, stopping a really poorly hit penalty from Eric Pulgar. In the 18th minute, Petricione had his dipping shot stopped by Terracciano. Fiorentina doubled their lead in the 38th minute with a bit of trickery on the free kick. After the whistle, a number of the Fiorentina players started complaining to the officials, so none of the Lecce players in the wall were prepared when Getzal quickly took his free kick over the wall and into the back of the goal. Then only a few minutes later, Patrick Cutrone made it 3-0, Keza played an excellent long ball from well inside his own half. Cutrona did well to stay onside and finish past Gabriel, which was his second in as many matches. Lecce nearly pulled one back before the break. Caceres gave the ball away off the goal kick, but Diego Farias' shot hit the bar and stayed out. The second half was not quite as entertaining as Fiorentina was content to sit on their three-goal lead. Shakov scored a late goal for Lecce, but it was far too late. This one finished 3-1. Rounding out the week, Sampdoria beat Cagliari 3-0. Federico Bonazzoli scored two more beautiful goals. Last round, he scored an overhead kick. In this match, his first was a long-distance shot to the far post, and the second was just outrageous. Bonazzoli scored a flying volley at about shoulder height with the outside of his boot. He's now scored four goals in his last five appearances. Manolo Gabbiadini's got the other goal. Gabbiadini has scored three in his last four matches. And Sampdoria have saved their season with 4 wins in their last 5. They're suddenly 11 points clear of the relegation zone. Moving on to Serie B, Benevento got their first win since guaranteeing themselves promotion. They beat last place Livorno 3-1. Crotone drew Salernitana 1-1, so they only need 1 win in their final 3 matches to lock up that second promotion spot. Spezia lost to Venezia 1-0, but they remained in 3rd place after Pordenone lost 2-1 to Cosenza. Pordenone remain in 4th place with Cittadella losing 2-1 to Ascoli. Frosinone's 1-1 draw to Pescara was enough for Frosinone to move up to 5th place, 1 point ahead of Cittadella. Pisa defeated Trapani 3-2 in the final minutes to move ahead of Empoli for the final promotion playoff spot. Empoli were up 2-0 before completely melting down. Two red cards later, they lost 4-2 to Antella. So the current promotion playoff sides in order are Spezia, Pordenone, Frosinone, Cittadella, Salernitana, and Pisa. Empoli, Chievo, and Antella are all still within striking distance of Pisa. At the bottom of the table, Venezia hopped over both Perugia and Pescara with their win. Perugia drew Cremonese 0-0, so Perugia and Juve Stabia are in the relegation playout spots. 
but none of Pescara, Venezia, Cremonese, and Ascoli are safe just yet. Finally in the Serie C playoff, Reggiana defeated Novara 2-1, and Aurelio De Laurentiis' body side beat Carreza in dramatic fashion. Carreza were up 1-0 until the final seconds of the match when Kevin Piscopo equalized to force extra time. Then in the 119th minute, Simone Simeri, who came from Napoli's academy, put Igaletti ahead. So the final for the promotion playoff will be between Reggiana and Bari, with the winner joining Monza, Vicenza, and Regina in Serie B. That'll do for part 2. In part 3, we'll review Napoli's draw to Bologna. Okay, so let's review Napoli's draw to Bologna. Mihailovic, and we're ready for kickoff here. It's Bologna who get the game underway then as the uh, sun sets over this uh, Dallara Stadium. This time leaves it again. Politano, and that's close. Oh, Milik, no, it's Manalas. Manalas with the header, and it's a goal. From Napoli, slack marking from Bologna. And Manalas with a diving header. Dive! Bologna at the moment. And that is the half-time whistle. So no change to the scoreline. It remains Bologna nil. Napoli won an early goal from... ...ruled out by the referee. As Napoli get the second half underway. And that's about it. Soriano, lovely control on the chest to go inside two Napoli players. Here's Barrow, Barrow! And this time the goal stands! Bologna have their equaliser! And it's man of the moment, Barrow! Who was outdone for Napoli's goal, but made up for it with hard work. That is the final whistle here at the Dallara Stadium. It finishes Bologna 1, Napoli 1. So as you heard, this one finished 1-1. As usual, we'll start with the lineups. Bologna lined up in their usual 4-2-3-1 formation with Skorupski in goal. With Mattia Bani injured, Takahiro Tomiyasu moves from his regular right-back position into the middle beside Bologna captain Danilo. Ladislav Krejci, who's normally an attacking midfielder, played in Tomiyasu's right-back spot. And Mitchell Dykes had started in all of Bologna's previous matches since the restart, so he got a rest, and Ibrahimi Mbai started in his place. Mbai had an excellent match, he did an excellent job marking Lozano, and he had a goal disallowed in the first half. Mbai thought he headed home the equalizer, but VAR reviewed the goal and determined he was in an offside position. He also made a really important interception in the 76th minute on what looked to be a dangerous counterattack. Danilo nearly put Bologna ahead in added time, but his long-range effort rocked the upright. 
As expected, Gary Medell and Nicolas Dominguez played at the holding midfielder positions. Both of them impressed me. Medell is an incredibly hard worker and Dominguez is an excellent passer, particularly in tight spaces. He had a nice interplay with Musa Barrow in the 64th minute that led to a scoring opportunity, but Dominguez's shot was off target. Napoli were fortunate that Mihailovic rested both of his wingers, like he did against Sassuolo two matches ago. When one of his wingers do not start, Mihailovic likes to drop Musa Barrow to the left wing and to play Rodrigo Palacio up top, which is what he did here. Roberto Soriano played in his usual trequartista role, and Andreas Olsen covered for Ossolini on the right wing. Again, Napoli were fortunate that Olsen started over Orsolini, especially with Kusai starting at left back. Olsen struggled in this match, conceding possession fairly regularly. Orsolini did replace Olsen in the 65th minute, and that's right about when Bologna really started to take it to Napoli. Palacio, Soriano, and Barrow were all really excellent in this one. If this was your first time watching Serie A, you wouldn't have realized that Palacio is 38 years old when you watch this one. He played the full 90 minutes and never stopped running. Like Mbai, Palacio had a goal overturned by VAR for being just a hair offside and he nearly scored in the 85th minute as well. Palacio was clear to the goal after Kusai fell, but his shot missed the mark. Musa Barrow was great as well. He is a phenomenal talent. He has great pace, touch, and strength, though you wouldn't know it looking at his slender physique. We'll talk about the goal in a bit, but Barrow was a threat throughout this match. For Napoli, Gattuso made 7 changes to the lineup he fielded against Milan. Alex Meret returned in goal. Though only a handful of clubs have conceded fewer goals than Napoli have since the restart, this was the Partenope's 6th consecutive match without recording a clean sheet. Other than Teo Hernandez's goal on Ospina though, for the most part the keepers were not at fault on these goals. In this match, Bologna had a number of excellent scoring opportunities, especially in the second half, but Meret did not have many saves to make. The best play he had to make was probably the challenge on Musa Barrow in the 65th minute when Meret sprinted off his line and flicked the ball out for a corner to prevent Barrow from breaking clear. At the back, we nearly predicted that Mario Rui would get a rest, but because we thought Orsolini would start, we ended up projecting Rui starts at left back. Instead, Kusai started at left back and Di Lorenzo at right back. Kusai was okay, but this match really made me appreciate how good Mario Rui has been lately, particularly in his ability to support the attack. Because of his size, Mario Rui is much quicker than Kusai, and he's also a better passer of the ball. Di Lorenzo was another player I thought was just okay. I thought he could have had a better match considering that even though Barrow lined up on the left, he tended to play more centrally. In the middle of the back line, Manolas returned to the starting 11, which was no surprise, and we saw the three-man center back rotation we talked about in the preview with Maximovic starting over Koulibaly. Manolas was my pick for best Napoli player in this match. He simply outmuscled Tomiyasu before scoring his fourth goal of the season. He nearly scored a second from a corner kick in the 20th minute, but he glances header wide of the far post. He also made a number of important tackles. In the 71st minute, he did really well to close down Tomiyasu. Manolas actually appeared to aggravate his hamstring injury on this play, but he did stay in the game. Manolas appeared to get beat by Palacio on the second Bologna goal that was overturned. On that play, Bologna worked the ball up the pitch really nicely before Soriano picked out Palacio's run. When you watch the replay, you see that Manolas was marking Palacio, but the reason he appeared to be so open was because at the very last second, Manolas hopped forward to play the offside. Had this goal stood, the blame would have actually been on Di Lorenzo for playing Palacio on. I wouldn't say Manolas was the man of the match, I don't think any Napoli player was to be honest, but I do think he was Napoli's best player. In the midfield, Diego Deme returned after two matches. 
I thought Demet had a strong start to the match. I know a lot of people felt he was Napoli's best player in this match, but I thought his performance declined as the match wore on. Demet nearly cost Napoli the match with a pass into the middle of the pitch that led to Danilo's shot off the upright. Elmas gave Fabian a much-needed rest and Zielinski completed the midfield. Like most of Napoli's players in this match, neither had standout performances. You can never fault Zielinski for his work rate, though he did concede possession on the Palacio goal that was disallowed. Up top, we got a wholesale change from the usual trio of Insigne, Mertens, and Calihon. We were two matches too early when we predicted that Lozano would start over Insigne in the Genoa match. Insigne finally got a rest, which meant Lozano finally got a start in this one. I thought Lozano was one of Napoli's better players. He got a weak shot on target in the first half. Then early in the second half, he had a really nice run where he dribbled through three or four Bologna players before firing his shot wide of the far post. However, this chance and performance showed why Lozano has struggled to crack Gattuso's starting 11. He seems to be most dangerous on individual efforts as opposed to team play. This starting 11 didn't help Lozano's cause either. The front three of Milik, Politano, and Lozano have not really played together much. He would have had better service from Fabian than he got from Elmas. And you could see that the pairing of Lozano and Kusai on the left side really didn't work so well. I'd love to see how Lozano would do with Napoli's regular starting 11 because with this group I still don't think we truly got to see what he has to offer. At the moment though he appears to be more useful off the bench when you need fresh legs with pace. But for the price Napoli paid for him you need to see him play more minutes and score more goals if not only to get his value back up so he can be sold again. Milik started at striker. Early on, he was very involved and it seemed he might have a good match, but at the end of the day, it was another underwhelming performance. When Mertens is on, you really see how he impacts the match. He's high energy, he drops deep to help defend. Milik is a different type of player. Not to make excuses for him, but he's only as good as the service he gets, and the service he got in this match was really quite poor. A number of passes in his direction were either overhit or lacked accuracy. Finally, Politano started on the right. I thought Politano was one of Napoli's better players as well. He delivered the cross on the amount of last goal. His play was positive and he tracked back to help defend like Gattuso wants. So those were the lineups. Let's talk a bit about the match. But before I do, I do want to acknowledge that this was an unusual starting 11, which we probably only saw because Napoli really has very little to play for until the Champions League resumes. Moreover, as much as I want to see Napoli win every match, this is exactly the type of squad I want Gattuso to play. If you look at Lazio's recent struggles, a lot of that can be attributed to their lack of depth, but you can also be critical of Simone Inzaghi for not giving his bench players enough playing time. So I want Gattuso to play around with different combinations of players, and I want him to give players like Almas and Labocca more minutes so they can get valuable experience in actual game play. So let's talk a little bit about the Bologna goal, and then we'll close with some general comments about the match. Napoli's defending on the barrel goal was a little bit suspect. This was a 2v4 situation. Ricardo Orsolini deserves a lot of credit for the goal. He received the pass from Skorupski in the middle of the pitch and did remarkably well to take the ball down with his chest to split Deme and Maksimovic. Maksimovic got caught out following Palacio and Deme was on the wrong side of Orsolini. So when Orsolini took the ball down, he had a wide open pitch in front of him. I thought it was unusual that Napoli were pressing so high on the goal kick. The result was that Orsolini had plenty of space to run into after controlling the ball. Orsolini showed great awareness to pick out Barrow's run as well and Barrow only needed two touches. The first to turn on to his left foot and the second to pick the corner. I don't blame Manolas too much, you have to tip your hat to Barrow for the finish. 
I did think the Lorenzo was a bit in no man's land and perhaps he should have closed down Barrow, but at the same time, Deme and Maximovic were both chasing Orsolini, so the Lorenzo had to defend the return pass. This was probably Napoli's worst match since the restart. It developed similarly to how the Milan game did, where Napoli were the better side in the first half, but as the match wore on, they lost control of the game. One thing I was surprised about with the Milan game was that Milan did not press high on Napoli's goal kicks. We saw Genoa do that in the prior match which caused a lot of problems for Napoli. In the second half of this match, Bologna appeared to make a conscious effort to press high and once again it led to Napoli mistakes and turnovers. Even though Gattuso has rotated his squad quite a bit, Bologna seemed to be more fit to the point where Napoli was really hanging on for a single point by the end of the match. My final criticism is that Napoli's passing in this match left a lot to be desired. We saw a lot of passes that were overhit, underhit, passes behind players which kills your momentum, and passes that forced the receiving player into awkward positions. Gattuso echoed some of these sentiments in his post-match interview with Zone. He talked about how Bologna were much better than Napoli, that Napoli played the first half but didn't even take the field in the second, and how this was their worst performance in their last 7 or 8 matches and they look like a team of 4 or 5 months ago. He also said it's interesting when people say they have nothing to play for or they're not motivated because they play Barcelona in a few weeks. It wasn't all negative though, I thought Napoli looked a lot better after Insigne and Callejon came on, and more and more Napoli is starting to look like Sadi's Napoli when they're in possession. In the 70th minute, Napoli had an excellent spell of possession where they made a number of quick one-touch passes in tight space to get out of their own end. Gattuso has talked about his respect for Sadi and how he's used some of his tactics, which is not crazy when you consider that many of these players have been around since the Sadi days. I know Napoli have only lost one match since the restart, which was against Atalanta, but they've also only won four of those matches. They drew Inter and Juventus in the Coppa Italia. I know they beat Juve in penalty kicks, but it was a draw in regulation time. Now they've drawn Milan and Cagliari, so the next five matches to end the season will be a great test for this club. Next is an inform Udinese with a red hot Kevin Lasagna, which we'll talk about in part 4. Then they have Parma, Sassuolo, Inter, and Lazio. So that's our review of Napoli Bologna. In part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Udinese. Passa scampanianna pattuleta Con manu appa pata fa guarda Tu vuoi fare l'americano, americano, americano Sienta a me chi tu fa fa Tu vuoi vivere alla moda Ma se bevi whisky e soda Poto siente disturbato tu a ballo rock e roll, tu gioca pesa bolla, vei sorda beccamella, chi te li dà la borsetta di mamma tua fa l'americano, americano, americano, ma si nati in Italia, si entra a me non c'è sta niente fa, ok napolitan, tu fa l'americano, tu fa l'americano. Okay, so we'll close the pod with a preview of Napoli's match on Sunday against Udinese. We'll start with Udinese's most recent match against Lazio. The rain was pouring for this one. Once again, Simone Inzaghi went back to his usual starting 11. Even though Lazio's dreams of a Scudetto are all but gone, Inzaghi continues to lean on the same players, many of whom are not fully fit. 
which really shows on the pitch. Inzaghi has probably rotated less than any other manager since the restart. Neither side had any clear-cut chances in the first half. It was much of the same with Lazio in this match. They looked pretty good early on. Lazzari had a shot go over the bar and Luis Alberto had a shot blocked. In the 24th minute, Musso made an excellent save on a well-hit ball by Lazzari from outside the box. Marco Parolo had a few attempts go over the bar as well. And Chiro Immobile had a volley from around the penalty spot that Musso stopped as well. It was also more of the same with Udinese, with the duo of Kevin Lasagna and Rodrigo De Paul looking very dangerous on the counterattack. As has been the case with Lazio lately, as the match wore on, they got tired and Udinese looked like the better side. My favorite play in this match was the block that Luis Felipe made on Lasagna early in the second half. Felipe dove forward with his arms behind his back to make the block and ensure that he didn't handle the ball, which is how you need to defend these days. Not long after that block though, Felipe nearly cost Lazio a goal. He was way too casual on a long ball for Lasagna. Lasagna broke free and elected to shoot instead of playing the square ball to an open Okaka. Strakosha came out and made what turned out to be one of, if not the most important save of the night. Strakosha was very good in this match. He had another excellent save in the 60th minute on a long range shot from Rodrigo De Paul. In the 82nd minute, Strakosha made a brilliant interception almost at midfield to prevent a Lasagna counterattack. In the end, Lazio were lucky to walk away with a point after Rodrigo De Paul hit the upright in the final seconds of the match. After the match, Inzaghi talked about the challenges of playing with the same players every three matches, which is peculiar because he's the one that chooses to play the same players game in, game out. It did feel like he was pulling an Antonio Conte, whining a bit about the lack of players, though Suning is actually willing to spend money, whereas I'm not sure that Lotito is. With Lazio playing in Champions League next season, Lotito will need to invest in the depth of this club, otherwise they'll probably crash out of the Champions League in the group stage, and maybe they're fine with that, it's still 6 games, but if the goal is to go as far as possible in the Champions League, then they will need more quality on the bench to compete in Serie A and to repeat a top 4 position. Okay, so let's look ahead to Udinese and Napoli. I had two key takeaways from this match against Lazio. First, Udinese's game plan will be to defend and then look to the pace of Lasagna and Rodrigo De Paul on the counterattack. Udinese are happy to allow their opponents to carry the ball into their own half, where all 10 men are waiting. They congest the midfield and frustrate their opponents. Napoli can counter that in two ways. One way is by moving the ball quickly, which Napoli have shown they're capable of doing in tight areas. The second way is through their wing play, which brings me to the second takeaway from the Lazio match. In the first half, Manuel Lazzari caused Udinese a lot of problems with his pace on the wing, so I think Insigne and Callejon are both going to be very important for Napoli in this one. Not only will they be able to stretch that congested midfield to create space, I also think we'll see Napoli look to pick out the runs of the wingers behind the back line. We all know about Callejon's vintage runs to the far post, Fabian therefore will also have an important role in picking out those runs. Okay, so next let's talk about the starting lineups. Udinese will line up in their usual 3-5-2 with Juan Musso in goal. Bram Neutink has started every Udinese match since the restart and he came off late in the Lazio match because his knee seized up, so I think he will sit this one out. Therefore, I'll go with a back three of Samir, Sebastian De Mayo, and Rodrigo Becao. In the midfield, Mato Yayalo injured his knee in the Lazio match, so from left to right we should see Ken Semma, Wallace, Rodrigo De Paul, Seko Fofana, and Jens Strieger Larsen. And up top, Stefano Okaka is suspended for yellow card accumulation, so Ilya Nesterovsky will likely play alongside Kevin Lasagna. For Napoli, I'm a bit torn about who will start in goal. 
Meret started against Bologna, which would suggest that Ospina starts this one, but Udinese will give Napoli plenty of space in their own end, which means you don't need a keeper who's good with his feet. Nevertheless, I'm going to stick with Ospina to start this one. At the back, Kaladu Koulibaly should return after resting the Bologna match. Manolas appeared to cramp up in that match, so I think we'll see Maksimovic play alongside Koulibaly. Mario Rui also rested for the Bologna match, so he should be back in at left back, and I think Giovanni De Lorenzo starts again at right back. In the midfield, I think it's a toss-up between Deme and Lobotka for the Regista spot. I think Gattuso will want to win after a poor performance against Bologna, so I'm going to go with Deme here. Fabian was also rested for most of that match, so I expect him to return to the starting 11 alongside Piotr Zielinski. And we talked about the importance of pace and wingers, so up top, I think we'll see Insigne, Mertens, and Callejon. In terms of the betting odds, Napoli are 1-2 favorites, Udinese are 5-1 underdogs, and the draw pays 3.3-1. For my prediction, I think Napoli are going to win this match 3-1 on goals from Mertens, Callejon, and Lozano for Napoli, and Lasagna for Udinese. As mentioned, I think Gattuso will be very eager to get back into the win column after a very disappointing performance against Bologna. Napoli have drawn two consecutive matches, first against Milan in which they probably deserved the win, and the second against Bologna in which they probably deserved the loss. Gattuso knows how weak his squad can be mentally, so he's going to do everything he can to avoid a third consecutive match without a win, which is why I think we'll see his best starting eleven. Udinese really only have two attacking threats in Kevin Lasagna and Rodrigo De Paul, but other than Di Lorenzo, I think Napoli's backline is playing better now than they have all season and are more than capable of stopping this pacey duo. Finally, Udinese are really thin right now. I mentioned that Stefano Okaka will miss this match due to suspension. Rolando Mandragora remains sidelined with an injury, and I mentioned the knocks that Noitink and Yayalo picked up against Lazio, which I think will keep them out. Or at the very least, if they play, I don't think they'll be 100%. Meanwhile, Gattuso has done an excellent job of rotating his squad, so he has plenty of depth to work with. I think Lozano will be an important substitute. Unlike the last two matches where Napoli dominated in the first half and then faded in the second, I think this match they will dominate from start to finish. So that's my preview of Napoli versus Udinese. That's also going to do it for episode 27. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends, give us a 5-star rating, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore 5 or you can find the podcast at Pod. We'll talk to you again after the Udinese match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre!
Sports Social Podcast Network.